This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Sawan. In the season leaves should love, since it gives them leave to move through the wind towards the ground they were watching while they hung. Legend says there is a seam stitching darkness like a name. Now when dying grasses veil earth from the sky in one last pale wave, as autumn dies to bring winter back, and then the spring, we who die ourselves can peel back another kind of veil that hangs among us like thick smoke. Tonight at last I feel it shake. I feel the night stretching away thousands long behind the days till they reach the darkness where all of me is ancestor. I move my hand and feel a touch move with me. And when I brush my own mind across another, I am with my mother's mother. Sure as footsteps in my waiting self, I find her, and she brings arms that carry answers for me, intimate, awaiting bounty. Carry me. She leaves this trail through a shudder of the veil, and leaves like amber where she stays, a gift for her perpetual gaze. Hello and welcome to Fireside of Horror. This is our third Halloween special for Fireside, the Irish Storytelling Podcast. My name is Kevin C. Olan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Fireside is a very, as a folklore and storytelling podcast, it always feels a particularly apt here at Halloween and I always like doing a Halloween special here and doing things a little bit differently than we normally do on Fireside where rather than adapting just a folktale or a myth I like to sample different gothic and spooky literature from poetry, song, fiction, non-fiction and put a little hodgepodge of samplings of different Halloween theme stories and works for you all and we like to open that with a poem called Samhain by the American poet Annie Finch, if anyone liked that. I thought that was a beautiful, incredibly evocative poem as as a perspective, a, a contemporary view on what the Celtic Harvest Festival of Samhain is, where the two worlds are so connected the world of the living and the dead, because that is what All Hallows' Eve was. It was the end of the harvest, it was the end, the beginning of the winter, and where the line between our world and the world of the dead is at its thinnest, and you can almost step through into it. And I thought Annie Finch really captured that with that beautiful poem, so I wanted to open up with that. We have a few bits for you on this very special Halloween special, very special Halloween special for Fireside. Before I go on, uh, please do, if you have not done so already, follow me on Instagram at Fireside Bard. 
email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. If you really want to support the podcast and are not doing so already, you can do so over at headstuffpodcast.com where you can join Headstuff Plus where for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you want. You can gain access to bonus episodes and bonus materials, not just for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network. And there is a very special video of my Fireside Sessions live show from the Dublin Podcast Festival in 2019 as the latest piece of bonus material for this month. That joins now a considerable few bits, a good bit of incentive to to swap over. You've got my interview with Mark Mark Williams, author of Ireland's Immortals, um, have a special on the mytho- mythological poetry of W.B. Yeats. Uh, there's a good few bits now up there and more being uploaded every month. That's your incentive. No hard sell, but Headstuff Plus is there if you want to support the podcast and I'd be very, very appreciative if you did. And next week we have a very exciting announcement for Fireside as we come up to the end of our three years we're coming up to the three year anniversary of Fireside as incredible as that is as we approach our 150th episode and uh, I've got a very exciting announcement for that which will be next week so please do stay tuned for that Next up on Fireside of Horror, I always like to read a passage from a classic work of gothic fiction and in the past two years on our first Fireside of Horror I did, or in our first one, I did an extract from Dracula. In our second Fireside of Horror, I did an extract from Frankenstein. Naturally, those would be the two big works of gothic fiction. But another one that doesn't get lumped with those as much, but sometimes does, and very, very rightly should, is Oscar Wilde's novel, his one and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray draws heavily from the established tropes of gothic literature and there's a real eeriness to it. So I wanted to do a reading from a passage from early on in the novel so that you don't have to have read it but that this might be an incentive for you to read it which was really nice. I've always really, really adored Oscar Wilde's work and it was one of the great pleasures and big challenges of Fireside last year was when I did the adaptations of Oscar Wilde's fairy stories of The Happy Prince and The Selfish Giant and a few of the others. So it was really nice to dip into this. Now again, this is not my adaptation of this. I'm reading directly from the novel because... Dorian Gray is one of my favourite books it's it's word perfect and if you haven't read it I highly recommend it and it is very much a Halloween book I think anyway or it certainly fits very thematically in with eeriness and spookiness so this is from chapter 3 the central character Lord Henry Wotton has just met the titular character of Dorian Gray and he's never met anyone who's had such a profound effect on him he finds Dorian to be physically perfect. He's so beautiful. And Lord Henry's friend Basil is painting this portrait, the titular picture of Dorian Gray, of this beautiful young dandy. And Lord Henry is so interested and enchanted with him, he goes to his uncle to find out what he can about Dorian's past. Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde 
When Lord Henry entered the room, he found his uncle sitting in a rough shooting coat, smoking a cheroot and grumbling over the times. "'Well, Harry,' said the old gentleman, "'what brings you out so early? I thought you dandies never got up till two, and were not visible till five. "'Pure family affection, I assure you, Uncle George. I want to get something out of you.' "'Money, I suppose,' said Lord Fermer, making a wry face. "'Well, sit down and tell me about it. "'Young people nowadays imagine that money is everything.' "'Yes,' murmured Lord Henry, settling his buttonhole in his coat. "'And when they grow older they know it. "'But I don't want money. "'It is only people who pay their bills who want that, Uncle George, "'and I never pay mine. "'Credit is the capital of a younger son, "'and one lives charmingly upon it. "'Besides,' I always deal with Dartmoor's tradesmen, and consequently they never bother me. What I want is information. But not useful information, of course. Useless information. Well, I can tell you anything that is in an English blue book, Harry, although those fellows nowadays write a lot of nonsense. When I was in the diplomatic, things were much better. But I hear they let them in now by examination. "'What can you expect? "'Examinations, sir, are pure humbug from beginning to end. "'If a man is a gentleman, he knows quite enough. "'But if he is not a gentleman, whatever he knows is bad for him.' "'Mr. Dorian Gray does not belong to Blue Books, Uncle George,' said Lord Henry, languidly. "'Mr. Dorian Gray? Who is he?' asked Lord Fermer, knitting his bushy white eyebrows. "'That is what I come to learn, Uncle George. Or, rather, I know who he is. He is the late Lord Kelso's grandson. His mother was a Devereux, Lady Margaret Devereux. I want you to tell me about his mother. What was she like? Whom did she marry? You would have known nearly everybody in your time, so you might have known her.' I am very much interested in Mr. Gray at present. I have only just met him. Kelso's grandson, echoed the old gentleman. Kelso's grandson, of course. I knew his mother intimately. I believe I was at her christening. She was an extraordinarily beautiful girl, Margaret Devereux, and made all the men frantic by running away with a penniless young fellow. A mere nobody, sir, a subaltern in a foot regiment or something of that kind. Certainly I remember the whole thing as if it happened yesterday. The poor chap was killed in a duel at Spa a few months after the marriage. There was an ugly story about it. They said Kelso got some rascally adventurer— some Belgian brute, to insult his son-in-law in public. Paid him, sir, paid him to do it. And that the fellow spitted his man as if he had been a pigeon. The thing was hushed up, but, egad, Kelso ate his chop alone at the club for some time afterwards. He brought his daughter back with him, I was told, and she never spoke to him again. Oh, yes, it was bad business. The girl died, too, 
died within a year. So she left a son, did she? I had forgotten that. What sort of a boy is he? If he is like his mother, he must be a good-looking chap. He is very good-looking, asserted Lord Henry. I hope he will fall into proper hands, continued the old man. He should have a pot of money waiting for him if Kelso did the right thing by him. His mother had money, too. All the Selby property came to her through her grandfather. Her grandfather hated Kelso, thought him a mean dog. He was, too. He came to Madrid once when I was there. Egad, I was ashamed of him. The Queen used to ask me about the English noble who was always quarrelling with the cabmen about their fares. They made quite a story of it. I didn't dare show my face at court for a month. I hope he treated his grandson better than he did the Jarvis. I don't know, answered Lord Henry. I fancy that the boy will be well off. He is not of age yet. He has Selby, I know. He told me so. And his mother was very beautiful. Margaret Devereux was one of the loveliest creatures I ever saw, Harry. What on earth induced her to behave as she did, I never could understand. She could have married anybody she chose. Carlington was mad after her. She was romantic, though. All the women of that family were. The men were a poor lot, but egad, the women were wonderful. Carlington went on his knees to her, told me so himself. She laughed at him, and there wasn't a girl in London at the time who wasn't after him. And by the way, Harry, talking about silly marriages, what is this humbug your father tells me about Dartmoor wanting to marry an American? Aren't English girls good enough for him? It is rather fashionable to marry Americans just now, Uncle George. I'll back English women against the world, Harry, said Lord Fermer, striking the table with his fist. The betting is on the Americans. They don't last, I am told, muttered his uncle. A long engagement exhausts them, but they are capital at a steeplechase. They take things flying. I don't think Dartmoor has a chance. Who are her people? grumbled the old gentleman. Has she got any? Lord Henry shook his head. American girls are as clever at concealing their parents as English women are at concealing their past, he said rising to go. They are pork packers, I suppose. I hope so, Uncle George, for Dartmoor's sake. I am told that pork packing is the most lucrative profession in America, after politics. Is she pretty? She behaves as if she was beautiful. Most American women do. It is the secret of their charm. Why can't these American women stay in their own country? They are always telling us that it is the paradise for women. It is. That is the reason why, like Eve, they are so excessively anxious to get out of it, said Lord Henry. Goodbye, Uncle George. I shall be late for lunch, if I stop any longer. Thanks for giving me the information I wanted. I always like to know everything about my new friends, and nothing about my old ones. Where are you lunching, Harry? At Aunt Agatha's. I have asked myself and Mr. Gray. 
He is her latest protege. Hmm. Tell your Aunt Agatha, Harry, not to bother me with any more of her charity appeals. I am sick of them. Why, the good woman thinks I have nothing to do but to write checks for her silly fads. All right, Uncle George, I'll tell her, but it won't have any effect. Philanthropic people lose all sense of humanity. It is their distinguishing characteristic. The old gentleman growled approvingly and rang the bell for his servant. Lord Henry passed up the low arcade into Burlington Street and turned his steps in the direction of Berkeley Square. So that was the story of Dorian Gray's parentage. Crudely as it had been told, it had yet stirred him by the suggestion of a strange, almost modern romance. A beautiful woman risking everything for a mad passion. A few wild weeks of happiness cut short by a hideous, treacherous crime. Months of voiceless agony, and then a child born in pain. The mother snatched away by death, the boy left to solitude and the tyranny of an old and loveless man. Yes, it was an interesting background. It posed the lad, made him more perfect, as it were. Behind every exquisite thing that existed, there was something tragic. Worlds had to be in travail that the meanest flower might blow. And Basil? From a psychological point of view, how interesting he was. The new manner in art, the fresh mode of looking at life, suggested so strangely by the merely visible presence of one who was unconscious of it all. The silent spirit that dwelled in dim woodland and walked unseen in open field, suddenly showing herself, dryad-like and not afraid, because in his soul who sought for her there had been wakened that wonderful vision to which alone are wonderful things revealed, the mere shapes and patterns of things becoming, as it were, refined and gaining a kind of symbolical value as though they were themselves patterns of some other and more perfect form whose shadow they made real. How strange it all was! He remembered something like it in history. Was it not Plato, that artist in thought, who had first analyzed it? Was it not Buonarroti who had carved it in the colored marbles of a sonnet sequence? But in our own century it was strange. Yes, he would try to be to Dorian Gray what, without knowing it, the lad was to the painter who had fashioned the wonderful portrait. He would seek to dominate him, had already indeed half done so. He would make that wonderful spirit his own. There was something fascinating in this son of love and death. Folks, as you all know, Fireside is a proud son of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which is Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts and a loving home for the creative and indeed the curious. There are so many other podcasts I could recommend to you on the network, some of which inspired me to approach Headstuff myself. Here's a taste of one you might enjoy. Agony Rants 
coming soon to the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Why can't I not say podcast? Hello, I'm Gerald Farrelly. And I'm Neve Kavanagh. And we have been friends for a very long time. And that is what we are offering you on our new podcast, Agony Rants. If you need a support group and want to tell us a secret. Or if you need someone to champion you or just cheer you up. Or maybe even some advice. On how to burn down a house or blow up your life or get revenge. So send your secrets, stories and problems to agonyrants at gmail.com. Agony Rants, coming soon to the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Sounds a little suggestive, I'm not going to lie. Like. Yeah, it was a little bit. It's very Cadbury's Caramel Bunny. <laughs> and that was a section from the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, Dorian Gray is considered... There's two things at play. There is there's the modernism that that wild has become and the aestheticism that was his his subgenre of the arts that he was exploring but he was so influenced by the popular gothic romances of the time that were almost dated by the time wild was writing towards the end of the 19th century so you can see his his both almost satire of as was his his acerbic wit was his strongest skill, but also his celebration of these gothic romances by giving Dorian Gray this incredibly tragic backstory with the the murdered father, the father murdered by the father-in-law and the daughter then dying soon after and him being raised by a, a loveless grandfather that would lead him to grow into this life of vanity that he becomes consumed by. You can also see so much of this is written in dialogue form because dialogue is where Wilde was the strongest, you know, as he was a playwright, uh, most celebrated as a playwright. And this was his one novel, which was because this was what sank Wilde. It was it was how Wilde wrote about wrote about men and wrote about beauty, particular male beauty in this that was considered one of the things that contributed to his downfall because ultimately it was his relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas or Bosey as he was known as to Oscar who was a lover of his it was the, his father the Marquess of Queensbury who would take Oscar Wilde to court uh, where he was convicted of the crime of gross indecency and sentenced to two years of hard labour um, in Reading Jail the very very tragic end to to a man who celebrated the the pleasures and the beauty of life so much and a lot of that is rife within Dorian Gray that there's there's a huge amount of lust for life and a caution of these lusts for life as well and an, a dark undercurrent and this this gothic nature running through it it is an incredible incredible book if you haven't read it i highly recommend that you do um, there is a phenomenal audiobook written re- read by Stephen Fry as an incredible incredible cele- uh, celebrator of uh, Wilde's work himself having played Oscar Wilde in the film adaptation and having talked about Oscar Wilde for his entire life there's no one better to have you read Dorian Gray or any of the works by Wilde than Stephen Fry but I hope you enjoyed my sampling of it there it's wonderful language to have in your mouth particularly when you've got all these idioms 
I edited it slightly just to condense it down a little bit and I was nearly going to edit out all the stuff about the Americans because it wasn't to do with Dorian Gray you know it was a totally separate thing but then I just couldn't resist lashing it in because it's so so well written I left that in specifically for my American listeners to this podcast I hope you got a chuckle and a kick out of some of that the third uh, or the next and final the final piece that I'm going to do for Fireside of Horror number three is a wonderful poem that was written as a children's poem originally by the Victorian poet and writer Christina Rossetti. Uh, she's not someone whose work I'd explored a huge amount before. Um, I knew her mostly as what really struck me about her was that she was known for writing the lyrics to a lot of what became established famous Christmas carols she wrote in the bleak midwinter wrote the lyrics to that and it was later set to music but this was actually her first major publication this was what she was very known for her first collection was known as Goblin Market and other poems and depending on who she talked to where she asked this was sometimes talked of as a poem for children sometimes told the poem specifically not for children I'll let you be the judge of that I thought it was just an incredible an incredibly apt poem for Halloween, wonderfully dark and gothic, a story of two sisters who and an expert, uh, uh, two sisters who stumble upon the forbidden fruits of a goblin market. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is very long, but I'll just give you an extract for yourselves that then you can go and look it up. You can find it anywhere on Poetry Foundation or anything. Uh, just for Halloween, this is Goblin Market by Christina, Ros- Christina Rossetti. Goblin Market Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry. Come by, our orchard fruits, come by, come by. Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom-down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, wild freeborn cranberries, crabapples, jewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricot strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather, morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly, come by, come by, our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates full and fine, dates and sharp bullaces rare pears and green gauges, damsons and bilberries, taste them and try, currants and gooseberries, bright fire like barberries, figs to fill your mouth, citrons from the south, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, come by, come by. Evening by evening, among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear, Lizzie veiled her blushes. Crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips, lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men, we must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, called the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie. "'Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men!' Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. 
Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One holds a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, no, no. Their offers should not charm us, their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail, one like a wombat proud, obtuse and furry, one like a rattle tumbled hurry-scurry. She heard a voice like voice of doves cooing all together. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Backwards up the mossy glen turned and trooped the goblin men with their shrill repeated cry, Come by, come by. When they reached where Laura was, they stood stock still upon the moss, leering at each other, brother with queer brother, signalling each other, brother with sly brother. One set his basket down, one reared his plate. One began to weave a crown of tendrils, leaves, and rough nuts brown. Men, men sell not such in any town. One heaved the golden weight of dish and fruit to offer her, Come by, come by, was still their cry. Laura stared but did not stir, longed but had no money. The whisk-tailed merchant bade her taste in tones as smooth as honey. The cat-faced purred, the rat-faced spoke a word of welcome, and the snail-paced even was heard. One parrot voice and jolly cried, Pretty goblin, still for pretty Polly, one whistled like a bird. But sweet-tooth Laura spoke in haste. Good folk, I have no coin to take word to purloin. I have no copper in my purse. I have no silver either. And all my gold is on the furs that shakes in windy weather above the rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, they answered all together. Buy from us with a golden curl. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red, sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man-rejoicing wine, clearer than water flow that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more Fruits which that unknown orchard bore She sucked until her lips were sore Then flung the emptied rinds away But gathered up one kernel stone And knew not what it was, night or day As she turned home alone Lizzie met her at the gate Full of wise upbraidings Dear, you should not stay so late Twilight is not good for maidens Should not loiter in the glen In the haunts of goblin men do you not remember Jeanie, how she met them in the moonlight, took their gifts, both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours? But ever in the moonlight she pined and pined away, 
sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled the grew grey, and fell with the first snow. While to this day no grass will grow where she lays low. I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. You should not loiter so. Nay, hush, said Laura, nay, hush, my sister. I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more. And kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I'll bring you plums tomorrow, fresh on their mother's twigs, cherries worth getting. You cannot think what figs my teeth have met in, what melons icy cold piled on a dish of gold, too huge for me to hold, what peaches with a velvet nap, pellucid grapes without one seed, odorous indeed must be the mead whereon they grow, and pure the wave they drink with lilies at the brink and sugar sweet their sap. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes on new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory, tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly. Not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast, locked together in one nest. Early in the morning, when the first cock crowed his warning, neat like bees as sweet and busy, Laura rose with Lizzie, fetched in honey, milked the cows, aired and set to rights the house, kneaded cakes of whitest wheat, cakes for dainty mounds to eat, Next churned butter, whipped up cream, fed their poultry, sat and sewed, talked as modest maidens should, Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream. One content, one sick in part, one warbling for the mere bright day's delight, one longing for the night. At length slow evening came. They went with pitchers to the reedy brook, Lizzie most plancid in her look, Laura most like a leaping flame. They drew the gurgling water from its deep. Lizzie plucked purple and rich golden flags, then turning homeward said, The sunset flushes those farthest lofty crags. Come, Laura, not another maiden lags. No willful squirrel wags. The beasts and birds are fast asleep. But Laura loitered still among the rushes and said the bank was steep and said the hour was early still, the dew not fallen, the wind not chill, listening ever but not catching the customer cry, come by, come by, with its iterated jingle of sugar-baited words, not for all her watching, once discerning even one goblin, racing, whisking, tumbling, hobbling, let alone the herds that used to tramp along the glen in groups or single of brisk fruit merchant men. Till Lizzie urged, O oh Laura, come, I hear the fruit call, but I dare not look. You should not loiter longer at this brook. Come with me home. The stars rise, the moon bends her are, each glowworm winks her spark. Let us get home before the night grows dark, for clouds may gather through this summer weather. Put out the lights and drench us through. Then if we lost our way, what should we do? 
Laura turned cold as stone to find her sister heard that cry alone. That goblin cry. Come by our fruits, come by. Must she then buy no more such dainty fruit? Must she no more such succuous pasture find, gone deaf and blind? Her tree of life drooped from the root. She said not one word in her heart's sore ache, but peering through the dimness, naught discerning, trudged home, her pitcher dripping all the way, so crept to bed and lay silent till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning, and gnashed her teeth for balked desire, and wept as if her heart would break. And that is an extract from Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. That's about half of the poem. There's still a good bit left to go of it. Highly recommend you check it out if you have not done so already. It's quite a recent discovery of mine. As I said, I hadn't read a huge amount of Christina Rossetti's work. But what an adventure. What a tale. It's like... It's like old possum's book of practical cats and Dr. Seuss meets the becked up gothic world of Edgar Allan Poe. It's so wonderfully Victorian and just delicious in its its words are as delicious in its descriptions of the fl- fruit. It's very interesting doing it beside Wilde's story because they have a lot of similarities, uh, the kind of work that Wilde wrote and Rossetti wrote, wrote, which is understandable considering they were both contemporaries and writing about Victorian culture. But with Rossetti... And apparently the the interpretations of this piece have been very, very disparate and very different. Uh, it's naturally considered uh, an exploration of, of sisterly love and of this relationship between these two sisters and of the feminism of the time and the role of women, of the idea of this, uh, this independence and this almost modern interpretation or contemporary at the time interpretation of Adam and Eve, you know, uh, Laura being lured off to the market by by literally these forbidden fruits that she can't pay for with money but pays for with her, her hair and with a teardrop. And this was around the time where capitalism, you know, was really starting to get off, like Victorian markets were becoming a huge thing that would only grow and grow and grow. But just this description of this this fevered frenzy and it's also considered this big exploration of of feminine sexuality which naturally at the time was incredibly oppressed and put down sexuality in general but especially women they wouldn't get there for another while in terms of being able to openly talk about this stuff and Christina Rossetti is doing it in this poem that was marketed towards children incredible incredible piece and I hope you enjoyed it a very Halloweeny very spooky eerie gothic poem and I hope you enjoyed The Fireside of Horror number three three very good very different pieces that I, I really was happy with finding that was Samhain by Annie Finch was our first piece then we had a section from The Picture of Dorian Gray before finishing off with Goblin Market by Christine Rossetti I hope you enjoyed them all let me know what your thoughts were uh, send me a message follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com um, and 
support over at Headstuff Plus if you haven't done so already. Bon- access to bonus material for a little five euro a month. The link is in the description below. I'll see you all next week where we'll have a return to the story of Geraint. With the story of Geraint and Enid as we have our last couple of stories. Our last three episodes on Welsh mythology as we head up to episode 150. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. Remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.